Yes, we have returned. Welcome back to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you are listening to the program where we talk about faith and try to stretch each other in God's direction. We want to lean into where God is leading us. We want to stretch toward His high calling, and we want to talk about issues of faith. We want to talk about what the Bible tells us, and we want to cultivate, challenge, encourage each other to have faith that we understand as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now, I know I've been around a little bit, and I understand that faith is not always easily defined that specifically. I know that we use faith in a number of ways, that word faith for a number of ideas. I get that, and that's okay. I'm not trying to diminish that. I'm not trying to unnecessarily limit the way we use the word faith. But I have noticed, for me, I think for other people, that understanding faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God leads us in the right direction and helps us grow in faith. I mean, faith is a very abstract concept. It's not something that you can easily wrap your arms around. I get that. But when we start to think about faith as confidence in God, I get that too. And I hope you do, because we can begin to challenge ourselves and ask ourselves, well, why am I struggling here? Do I have confidence in God? Why am I afraid at this point? Do I have confidence that God is there for people like me? Do I have absolute confidence that I can trust God for this situation? I can't, you can't, nobody can make life's challenges disappear. I often wish I could for people that I know. I have wished I could for my own life challenges, but I can't. And yet I can, in the midst of that, challenge myself, encourage myself to have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Because in the end, God will handle all of the things. And in the, in the end, he will make all the wrong things right. Well, we've been off for a couple of weeks, partly because of the holiday season, Christmas and New Year's, partly because, and maybe you haven't noticed that the network that hosts our program, AmericaOutloud.news, has undergone some significant changes at their website. And if you haven't gone there and checked it out, I want to really encourage you to go check out AmericaOutloud.news. Part of the reason we were off for the last couple of weeks is because the network was making some very significant improvements in the way we present news and information. And I think if you go there, you will find some things that you won't hear other places. And I want you to be discerning and evaluating all of the news and all of the information you get out there, because I hardly know how to say this, but but I guess I just have to say it straight up. So many times, and in so many ways, what I hear presented in the news, out in particularly the mainstream arena, just isn't the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so you and I, we have to challenge ourselves and and make sure we listen carefully to what they say and what they don't say, so that we can come to grips with this idea 
of understanding our times and getting at the truth. And I think you'll find some helpful resources and information on americaoutloud.news. You can go there and you might want to check out the shopping area. There's a place where they're my favorite, I guess you'd say, because people who know me, yeah, yeah, they know it's my favorite, is the book section. Go look for some books you might be interested in reading. There are other things that are available through the store at some, and at some good discounts. So take a look at AmericaOutloud.news. I think it's very well, very well done and very much worth your while to look into all those things. And, and if you're looking for some specific things about the, the COVID nonsense, be sure and check out the information that Dr. Peter McCullough puts out. And you can find that there at AmericaOutloud.news. Don't be afraid of what's true. Sometimes people get their mind made up and they're not, they don't want to hear anything else. Don't be afraid of information that's new to you. Never be afraid of that. Embrace what's out there. Use good discernment and you can figure out that which is true and that which is false. Biggest problem people have is they turn their mind off to things and so they get caught up in stuff they don't really need to get caught up in. So anyway, where were we? Well, we were and are following the life of Jesus. And so I want to kind of pick us up to that point and and then take a couple of steps in the next direction as we follow the life of Jesus. Many churches, I don't know if yours does, maybe it does, I hope it does, make sure that we think about the life of Jesus as we approach the celebration of Christmas during the season of Advent. And you may have had in your church an Advent wreath or some other visual aid to remind us of the approach of the birth of Jesus, to remind us that the prophets said he would come. And parallel to all of that, and we should not forget this, it's easy to overlook it because people people get afraid when they think about this, and they shouldn't. But parallel to that anticipation of Jesus' birth, or the celebration of his birth, I should say, we also anticipate the coming again of Jesus, his return. Now, sometimes people get a little, um, how should I say, ouchy. I had a friend who used that expression frequently, they get a little ouchy over things like the return of Jesus. And and I've often thought, now what's going on that makes us so nervous, so anxious? Even some people who claim to be followers of Jesus, afraid. And I remember that kind of sense when I was growing up, and there was a lot of that fear. And I think a lot of it was, was an attempt to convince people that they needed to be afraid of Jesus' return if they weren't ready. But I guess I think that too often in the, in the honest and well-meaning attempt to get people ready for the return of Jesus, we have um, introduced fear as a motivator. And so lots of people, even those who are followers of Jesus, are afraid. So don't be afraid to consider the return of Jesus. After all, it was a welcome occurrence when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. I mean, remember the shepherds, they were excited, the angel announcement, all of that stuff. It was welcome news that God had sent Messiah, sent the Savior of the world to everyone. And he had been promising that all through the tracing of the prophets and all of that. We can remember that and trace much of that and many of the specific predictions. And God kept his promise. So God kept his promise. That ought to remind us that we can have confidence that God is trustworthy. When God promises something, he actually does it. 
And the same thing is true when he promises to come back and make all of the wrongs right. We can count on him doing that. And the New Testament, as we have formulated the book of Revelation, the next to the last verse is a prayer, even so, come Lord Jesus. So it's eager anticipation that he would come back. It's, it's like if a good friend goes away and you don't see them for a while, you're eager for their return. This is the kind of eagerness we need to cultivate and readiness and preparedness for the return of Messiah, return of Jesus. Because God promised he would come and be born in Bethlehem, and he was. God promised he'll come back as Lord and King, and he will. We can be certain of that. So that's good news from Advent. And, and the other thing then, moving away from the Advent idea, is actually celebrating the arrival of Jesus. That he actually is here, and, and it's interesting to me, and not surprising, it's just interesting. I think we in the church need to push back against this. Frank, frankly, I think it's important that we push back against it. But we in, in our culture tend to look at events as occurring and then they're done. So when we have the 4th of July, we have a celebration on the 4th of July, and then we kind of forget about the significance of liberty because, well, we had the celebration on July 4th. Similarly, when we have Thanksgiving, we build up and anticipate and get ready for and gather for Thanksgiving dinner. We enjoy it very much. We enjoy the football games, whatever is part of your Thanksgiving. But then when it's over, it's kind of over, and Thanksgiving is kind of in the rearview mirror. Well, so we have this kind of pattern in our world, the way we operate culturally in our country, is that, and it kind of causes us to build up to something and then forget about it. I think that when it comes to these important Christian holidays and celebrations, we should build up to them in anticipation, but we shouldn't let the celebration stop. Because as we follow the church year, we move, for, move from Advent into Christmas. And so Christmas is a t- period of time from December 25th to January 6th, and we should celebrate that. I found myself talking to someone during that interim between Christmas and New Year's, and I wished that person a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year, and I thought later, they probably thought I was nuts, because they probably thought, hey, wait a minute, don't, don't you realize Christmas was three days ago, or whatever it was, and uh, I thought to myself, well, yeah, they probably did think I was nuts, but then I thought, you know, I'm not nuts, because as the church celebrates these festivals, Christmas is still going on. And so we need to to recapture that and say Merry Christmas to each other even after Christmas is over. Even on December 26th, it's still Merry Christmas because Jesus has come. He has been born. That's the reality of that. Well, then we move from Christmas into New Year's. At least that's the way our culture works. And that's, that's fine. We wish everybody a happy new year. People wish that to me last Sunday at church. Oh, and did I mention I am a pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. And so on Sunday we had service and we were wishing one another a happy new year. That was fine. But, but remember, as the church thinks about the year, we had had a happy new year earlier because The first Sunday of Advent is the first Sunday of the church year as we tell the story of Jesus. And so on that Sunday, I wished everyone a Happy New Year. Well, why did I do that? Because I want to focus our attention on the importance of telling the story of Jesus. 
And so during this period of time, we make intentional efforts to tell the story of Jesus. Too many people talk about that we live in a time of biblical illiteracy. In other words, we don't know the stories of the Bible. Well, I want to make sure that I do what I can to help people at my church understand the stories of the Bible and embrace them. So we say Happy New Year at the beginning of Advent, or, or I do. I think everybody looks at me funny still, but I don't think I'm going to change. I'm going to keep wishing everybody a Happy New Year on the first Sunday of Advent. No matter what, I'm going to continue to wish people a Merry Christmas after December 25th. And so now, as we tell the story, we come to the next significant event in the story of, of Jesus. And we've been through Advent. We've been through the story of Jesus' birth from Luke. And many of us read that during that season. And now we come to the next important point in the story of Jesus, and that's the visit of the wise men. Typically, January 6th has been identified as the date we celebrate the arrival of the wise men. Now, we know it took many, many more days, a couple of years even, before the wise men appeared to to Jesus and his family in Bethlehem. We understand it took some time. The, The exact time is somewhat uncertain, as far as I can tell. But nonetheless, it was a while, and we compress this whole story of the life of Jesus as we go along because we just need to get the story out there. We can't, we can't stretch it out to the exact time. I think we understand that. But on January 6th, we celebrate Epiphany, or the arrival of the wise men. And that's a significant event, significant story in the life of Jesus. And I thought, let's read, because sometimes the wise men don't get enough attention except as three very interesting characters in our Christmas dramas. But let's read together the story of the visit of the wise men to Jesus. And it's, I'm going to read it. It's found in Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to use the New Living Translation. This is the translation we use in our church services when we have scripture readings. Every Sunday we have four scripture readings, and we use this translation because it's very readable and understandable and I want people to be able to read and understand the Bible. So, from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem, asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this as was everyone in Jerusalem. Well, parenthetically, before we go on, if King Herod is disturbed, it's no wonder everybody else is, because nobody knew what he might do. All right, so they were all kind of shook up. If Herod's shook up, we're all shook up, because Herod being shook up could spill over on us somehow, and they were shook up. Let's continue, verse 4. He, meaning King Herod, he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, Go to Bethlehem. And search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me, so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. 
It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and, the, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. That's a great story of the wise men. Absolutely fascinating. A lot of interesting things in there. Uh, we, we can take time to think about a couple of them, and, and I think it's important to think about what the story really says, but also to think a little bit beyond what's going on here. So, many English translations describe these men as wise men, and that's a very good description. We know from historical things that there were people described as wise men in lands that would have been beyond Bethlehem, shall we say. So these wise men also are understood to be astrologers and or, probably more and than or, astronomers. They did study the stars. So when they saw this star that attracted their attention, they knew something was going on. Now, we really don't know exactly, the last I could find out, exactly what the star was about, what kind of physical phenomenon or super physical phenomenon God used to put this big billboard, so to speak, in the sky for these wise men to see. But they saw it. Now, the reason they would have noticed it is because as astronomers and maybe more astrologers, they studied the stars, believing that the stars could give them evidence of things that were going to happen in the future. In other words, they used that to predict important, significant events, and they expected to know them because they believed, and not rightly, I would add, this, this is completely contrary to what the Bible talks about. They believed that somehow the stars could reveal the future. Even as long ago as ancient times, people were fascinated with trying to figure out the future. People are today. You know, knock it off and have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Forget about worrying about the future. God is in the future. He'll be there when you get there. And if we have confidence in him, we'll be okay. That makes sense? But nonetheless, they still, they were concerned about that. Well, how did they know to expect this idea of a king of the Jews? Well, certain signs in the sky pointed to significant events like the birth of a king. That, that we know because they kept detailed records, and so we have some fairly good ideas of, of what they did. They not only looked at the stars, but they also considered dreams and what dreams might mean. And they had extensive catalogs of books, you might say, that, that gave them insights that if a dream was this, then it meant that, so forth and so on. So they were very, very caught up with that. And they served in the royal court. And we know that because in the book of Daniel, we have insight into the wise men of the royal court of King Nebuchadnezzar. So, we want to connect a little dot here. Tentatively, tenuously, we want to connect it. We don't know for sure, at least as far as I've seen. We don't have evidence to say this is positively absolutely certain. But we have tantalizing clues 
that the wise men may have known to look for the arrival of Messiah, the king of the Jews, because of the influence of Daniel and his friends in the royal court of Babylon. So let's connect that dot. You probably remember that there was a cataclysmic event in the life of God's people. That was when God gave Jerusalem into Nebuchadnezzar's hands. God's people had been disobeying, had not been faithful in following God. And God finally said, enough is enough. You know, that's instructive right there, isn't it? How many people today think they can just get by and God will just give them a pass and then another pass and another pass? Um, No, that's really not the case. God is not going to give you a hall pass for all of your nonsense. He didn't give it to his people way back then, and he won't give it to any of us now. He expects us to be faithful. So it got so bad, and they ignored the warnings of the prophets, like people will ignore warnings like I give as a pastor, like the Bible gives when we read it. They just somehow think they are exempt from all of this, but God's people found out they were not exempt, and it was a horror to them to imagine that the holy city of Jerusalem had been given into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan king, and he came in and, well, shall we say, took care of business. He ravaged the city, took the royal treasures from the temple of God, and took them back to Babylon. He took people into exile. It was a cataclysmic horror in the life of God's people. Can't overstate that. Don't want to understate it. It's especially significant that God used a pagan king. Now, it's, it, it's, it's kind of incomprehensible to God's people that God would allow this ungodly king to take his city. Well, it's important to understand that based upon the way Daniel tells the story, Nebuchadnezzar didn't take that city. God gave it to him. God was very much managing the situation, and God very much deliberately gave the city to King Nebuchadnezzar because the people had abandoned him. And so that was what he did. Now, interestingly enough, after exile, God's people never abandoned him the same again, never again. It was that much of a turning point, that much of an important correction. So, okay, back to the story of Daniel. Daniel and some of his friends, and there are more than one, there are three others named in the book of Daniel, were taken captive and taken back into exile to the royal court of Babylon. This was a common thing that happened in wars in those days. The brightest and the best from the kingdom that they conquered were taken into the new kingdom, the new ruler's service, and they were expected then to serve in his court and to help him as he ruled the empire. So Daniel and his friends were taken back. They were trained in all the language and literature of the Babylonians. They learned all the things that were important to the king that that were believed to be necessary for them to give guidance in the royal court of Babylon. And we know that part of what the wise men of Babylon did was they learned about the stars. They studied the stars and they tried to understand visions and dreams. So we understand that when Daniel and his friends were taken into the royal court of Babylon. They were trained in those same types of skills. We know there's more to the story than this, but we know that they excelled in their learning 
and were found to be at the head of the class, so to speak, in terms of their ability to serve the king after they had gone through their several years of training. Well, they learned all of that. Much of it would not have been in line with what they understood about God. But they served faithfully, and they never abandoned faithfulness to God in spite of the difficulties of the court. And you may remember the fiery furnace story that's related to all of this demonstrates their faithfulness to God. They were, they were faithful people. Daniel was, to the end, faithful to his God. It was recognized in Babylon that he was. And so the tantalizing connection between the royal court of Babylon and Daniel and the coming of Messiah is this. Could it have been that Daniel, because of his faithfulness, not only learned the language and the literature of the Babylonians, but the Babylonians learned about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the king, the one true God? Could it be that Daniel told them about the writings of the prophets? Could it be that Daniel told them the stories of how God created the heavens and the earth and and the stories of how God got his people out of Egypt and slavery and took them, got them through the Red Sea on dry land, got them to Sinai where he came and met with them in a powerful demonstration of his presence and his desire to be with his people? Could it be that in all of that, Daniel taught these wise men, because that's what they were in the Babylonian royal court. They were wise men, and Daniel was one of them. When they graduated from their training, they became part of this company of wise men in the Babylonian royal court. And could it be, I like to think so, but I can't prove it, so I want you want to be clear about that. I can't prove that this happened, but it's a tantalizing idea that perhaps... Daniel's testimony of the faithfulness of God meant more to these wise men, and they told the story down through the years from the time of Daniel being there to the time of Jesus' birth. And so they were not surprised, and when they saw this star, whatever that was in the sky, and however God did that, and we still don't know for sure, whatever that was, they recognized it, and they knew because of that that a king a king of the Jews had been born, and they went to worship him. Could it be that they knew that simply because of a faithful testimony of Daniel and his buddies in the royal court? Well, we know, we saw the story, they went, Herod was all upset about it, but he sent them with a private mission to go to Bethlehem and to find the baby, find the king of the Jews, and then report back to him. Well, we know we didn't read the story, but we know from what happened later that Herod's idea was not to worship the king, but rather to destroy the king, to destroy Messiah. And God delivered Jesus from Herod's evil plot. But interestingly enough, the wise men, here are these guys who came from a pagan country, and we don't know their relationship to God. I wouldn't presume to, to know anything really about that, but we know one important thing that they went in search of the child and they found the child just as they expected. In Bethlehem, they brought the child gifts and they worshiped the child. And then they heard from God warning them not to go back to Herod and tell him what they knew. Are we open? I think we are. 
Well, we're going to take a little bit, bit of a break. We've got a lot more to cover because we're trying to catch up here on the life of Jesus and some other things. I'm Pastor Rick. You stay with us. We'll be right back. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company launched the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Be a part of a revolutionary new healthcare system that puts your health and well-being above the interests of Big Pharma's bottom line. It's the way healthcare should be. Go to OutLoudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. This is Jody O'Malley with Nurses Out Loud. Did you know our body is made up of trillions of cells and inside each cell, redox signaling molecules are produced? These molecules hold a sacred place in chemistry because as we age, the vital communication of our immune system becomes less efficient. For the first time ever, ASEA brings you the power of these molecules in a convenient and potent form to provide your body with the essential support it needs to thrive. Ever since I toured their facility, I take two ounces in the morning and evening, and my vitality and energy has been restored at a time I needed it the most. Go to AmericaOutloud.shop and get your exclusive 15% discount by using the code OUTLOUD. The buildup of spike proteins is dangerous to your health. Global Healing's Foreign Protein Cleanse detoxes your body, removing the spike proteins, allowing your body to repair from within. Formulated by Dr. Edward Group and by Dr. Brian Artis, Foreign Protein Cleanse targets and detoxes spike proteins in the body. Go to americaoutloud.shop and get 15% off using the code OUTLOUD. Global healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. Maintaining a strong immune system has never been more critical. Nutrition company Healthy Cell created Immune Super Boost to help you strengthen your immunity. Unlike other supplements that don't work, Immune Super Boost is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed nutrients proven to support immunity, like vitamin C, D3, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free, love it, or your money back, guaranteed. HealthyCell.com, code out loud. With the rise of independent media, we are now AmericaOutloud.news. For the genius of the United States is not found in its executives or legislatures, nor its ambassadors, authors, colleges, or churches, nor even in its newspapers or inventors. The genius of the United States is we the people. AmericaOutloud.news. Liberty and justice for all. All right, we are 
are back and once again we're talking about faith and stretching ourselves in God's direction. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, a real church of real people where we have a real wonderful time stretching each other and challenging each other to go in God's direction. And we finished the first part of the program talking about the wise men and their wise decision to listen to God as he directed them to go back home by a different way and not to report to Herod. And the question that I posed for all of us was, would we be willing to listen to God when he speaks to us? And he speaks to us through the pages of the Bible, through the Bible stories that we read and hear, sometimes through sermons, sometimes through a program like this. God will speak to us and say, that's for you. You need to go in that direction. The first question, though, we need to ask is not where might we hear from God, but are we willing to hear from God? And some of us have trouble with that because we've made up our mind this is the way it is. Well, I want you to have conviction about the right things, but I also believe that we all need to be willing to hear when God wants to put us on a new path. And so that's the kind of the challenge from the wise men. Will we be as wise as they were to wisely follow the way God leads us? And a little bit of a correction, we're not going to get into this idea of how to hear from God a lot today. Maybe in a future program we can talk about that some more. But here's the, the most helpful correction that I'm aware of. If you're trying to figure out, did God speak to you? One, it wouldn't be contrary to the Bible. The God, the God of the Bible is not going to speak to you and tell you to go rob a bank to solve your financial challenges, okay? So make sure that what you're contemplating is not in contradiction with a clear message of God from the Bible. Something that's timeless and stands up to time that we know we shouldn't do. Uh, maybe a little more contemporary illustration is, if you're married, God is not going to direct you to go find a different spouse. No matter how you might wish for that, and I hope you're not in that situation, but this is kind of what the world we live in talks about that suddenly people think they found themselves and they need to go find a different honey. Well, that's just, that's just a lie from the enemy, and it's leading us away because of our own desires. That's, that's kind of the correction I mean from the Bible. If it's clear, we need to listen to what God says in the Bible. The second thing is this. If you have godly friends, and I emphasize godly, I don't mean just people who are kind of sort of faithful to God, but I mean people who you know are faithful to God and understand things of the Bible, Run your concerns by them. Ask them. What I'm essentially saying is, will the church agree with you that God is speaking to you in this way? So those are two corrections as you try to hear from God, if you're willing and open to hearing from God. Well, one of the other things that we do at our church, and I thought it would be appropriate for us here as we come back together here at the start of the new year, is to talk about this idea of covenant. And I bring this up every now and then because I'm convinced that the concept of covenant is the best way for us to understand how we should be relating to God. It's not the only image that the Bible uses, but it uses it repeatedly, and it's how God started his relationship with people all the way back when he went to Abram and invited Abram, later to become Abraham, that's all part of the covenant understanding, if he would like to be his covenant partner. And that was a very significant event in the life of the people of God, very significant event in Abraham's life. It changed everything because out of the tribe of Abraham came God's people, 
the Jewish people, and now we as Christians are part of that tribe. New Testament talks about how we've been grafted in. So that's our, our story. Those are our people. And it started with Abraham in Genesis 15, this idea of covenant. And I would encourage you to read Genesis 15, as there's some mysterious kind of stuff in that passage. But the essential thing is that God comes along and invites Abram to be his covenant partner, which means that they will now be joined together in a way that is totally different than God's relationship to other people. God says, I'm going to give you all of myself if you will give me all of yourself. There's a little bit more involved in in the specifics of Abraham's story because of the promise of, of an heir, the promise of a son, which, yeah, you're right, it does kind of parallel the promise of Messiah, but let's not get into all of that. So they have this conversation, God and Abram, and the scriptures tell us in Genesis chapter 15 that Abram believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Our challenge today is, do we believe God? We have people everywhere telling us the Bible's out of date. Well, what about this? They say, the Bible says this, it can't be true because of this. And our challenge is continually, do we believe God? That was the same challenge Adam and Eve faced in the garden. If you want to think about that, it goes back to as far as that, when the tempter came along and said, did God really say that? Now you go back and you read it, and you read the exact language in whatever English translation you get, and you will come to the conclusion that what Satan is doing there is challenging God's truthfulness and asking Adam and Eve, do you really believe God is telling you the truth about this? That's the same challenge we have today. Do we really believe God is telling us the truth, and will we give allegiance to him and follow him faithfully? Well, that's, that's significant. That's covenant. And Abram came along, and he believed God, and God gave him credit for that belief. Now, the question is, will we become people of the covenant as well? Now, by birth, in ancient times, people became part of the people of God by the practice of entering into covenant as an adult. Circumcision was part of that practice, and there was a a whole process by which people became people of the covenant, but then it was mostly characterized by their faithfulness to keep the terms of the covenant. Because God comes along and says, I want to be your covenant partner, and here's how we behave toward each other. And God made promises, like the promises of, of sending a Messiah, Jesus, which he kept, but he also said to Abram, and he says to us, they're, they're, these are the things that you need to do. For example, you don't take my name in vain. Remember that from the Ten Commandments? Or you have no other gods before me. Or you don't make an idol to replace me or even to represent me. I can't be confined to images that you make out of wood or metal or whatever. You don't lie to each other, those kinds of things. You don't steal from each other. Those are the covenant responsibilities that we take on as covenant partners with God. And it's important to remember that covenant is not a heavy-handed, you must do this. Covenant is an, is an invitation. It's an invitation to become God's partner. That's what salvation is about. It's an invitation to come to God and to be part of his family of faith. Now, there's another There's another type of description we use, the family of faith. The idea being Are you going to be part of the people of God? Are you going to join yourself into covenant with them? 
and it's an exchange. The covenant ceremony from ancient times had several rituals where they would exchange things. It was partly portrayed that way in Genesis 15 with Abram and God. Very interesting way it was portrayed there. And that's way beyond the scope of what we're talking about today. But that was an introduction. It was the beginning of this concept of covenant that ancient people understood and that we can use in our understanding of God. So it's a voluntary exchange. We do voluntary exchange when we go to the store. If you go to the store to buy cornflakes, for example, I don't know if you eat cornflakes, but let's just use cornflakes as an example. You go to the store to buy cornflakes and there's a price on them and I have no idea what the price is because I don't do that kind of shopping in our family. I never know what the right price for a lot of things is. But anyway, you go into the store, you know this, and you see cornflakes, and you decide, well, I need cornflakes, I want cornflakes, I'll pay that price for cornflakes. And so it's a voluntary exchange. You go and you go to the checkout line and you pay your money for your cornflakes, and now they have some of your money, but you have some of their cornflakes. So it's a voluntary exchange. We understand that. That's what covenant is. Covenant is not a heavy-handed, you better do this or else. But covenant, when it comes to our covenant with God is not an equal exchange. We get from God all that God is and all that God promises. And he asks us to give him all of ourselves. And you might say, well, I don't know all about God. Well, I don't either. Nobody does. We know what God reveals to us and we know what we learn from studying and listening to people talk about it and reading the Bible and all those things. So we know something about God. We know what he has told us about himself. And then you might say, well, okay, I don't know everything about God, but I also don't know everything about me. Well, we learn about ourselves, don't we, over time? I don't know what age you are, but I'm pretty sure you know some things about yourself now that you didn't know a couple of years ago. Life kind of unfolds and we learn some things about ourselves, some good, some maybe not so good. Some habits we want to pick up and reinforce, and some habits we say, i got to stop doing that, all of those things. But, and God doesn't ask us to know ourselves perfectly. He asks us to give all that we know of ourselves to him in exchange for him giving all of himself to us. When we say yes to that exchange, it is the first yes of many yeses to come, because from that point on, God now has the privilege to say to us, well, I also want this from your life. Oh, you want me to do that? Okay, I'll do that. And so we maybe give up that bad habit or stop that behavior. Maybe we forgive that sorry rascal in our lives and they are legion, aren't they? Well, this is what it's about. It's about saying yes to God and then continually saying yes to God. It's a covenant exchange. Now, it's not equal, and there's an interesting story. I was looking into this a little bit by, about a man named Roy who had two sons. Roy and his sons were rock collectors. Now, I don't understand rock collecting at all, except the rocks that I collect out of my yard, I put in a stack because I don't know what else to do with them, and I don't want to run over them with a the lawnmower. But anyway, they collected interesting, valuable, attractive rocks. And so Roy was going to go to a rock show. I didn't even know there was such a thing as a rock show except a concert. But anyway, he went to a rock show where he was going to be seeing rocks. And each of his sons gave him $5 to buy them a rock, an attractive rock. So Roy went to the show to look for the rock. And he found a vendor that had a bunch of agates. 
Now, apparently agates, and again, I'm way over my head in ter terms of rocks, but apparently agates are attractive rocks that collectors like, and so they put them on display. And this one vendor had a Tupperware tray of agates, and in the middle of this Tupperware display of, of rocks, there was a potato-sized rock that was a little on the ugly side. And he had a price tag on that of $15. Well, Roy looked at that, and, and he said to the guy, you want $15 for that? And the guy responded, okay, I'll take 10 well, Roy was careful to get a receipt for his $10. He was buying this rock, and so he bought it for $10, got the receipt, and Roy could hardly contain himself until he got outside of the rock show because Roy had purchased, the vendor did not know, but Roy had purchased the largest known star sapphire in the world up to that point. As it was, and it was kind of on the ugly side by all accounts, it was worth $2.5 million. Uncut. If it had been cut and made to look and to perform better, whatever, again, I don't know rocks, but people do. If it had been cut, it would be worth around $10 million. Now, that's an exchange, wouldn't you say? That's kind of what we get when we exchange our lives for God's life. We get everything. And that's what we need to keep in mind. In Matthew chapter 13, there are a couple of stories that Jesus told about the value of the kingdom of heaven. And he starts out by describing the kingdom of heaven. And sometimes when we read those, those phrases, we get a little skewed in our thinking. When, when you see the phrase kingdom of heaven, we tend to think of heaven, you know, as that place that everybody wants to go someday. Well, that's not what the writer meant when Matthew told the story in Matthew chapter 13. They, they were reluctant to use the name of God. We would say the kingdom of God is like. And these are the words of Jesus that Matthew tells us the kingdom of heaven is like. But they didn't use the, the name of God, so they used different phrases to refer to the kingdom of God. But he said the kingdom of God is like somebody who goes and sees a treasure in a field and, and then goes and sells everything he has to buy that field so he can have that treasure an exchange. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like exchanging for that, for that treasure, being willing to give everything up, everything you have to sell everything to go buy that so you will have more than you ever imagined. Or he goes on to say it's like somebody who's looking for a pearl. And he finds this pearl, often in the English translation, described as a pearl of great price, this magnificent pearl. And so he goes and sells everything so he can buy that pearl. You can go read those stories. They're very short, very short in Matthew chapter 13, but it's an exchange. Jesus, saying that, Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like that. It's exchanging what you have, all that you are, for something of incomparable value. That's the idea of covenant. That's the idea of becoming a follower of Jesus, exchanging that all for that. Now in Mark, Chapter 8, if you go there, you'll see a verse there that, that says rhetorically, what can a person exchange for his own soul? See, there again, Jesus is talking about this idea of exchange. What is your soul worth? And so the challenge of covenant is, is your soul worth so much that you're going to hang on to your way and your ideas and your wants and preferences and all that, is it so valuable that you would give up your soul for that? Or would you give up your soul to Jesus so that you could save your soul 
and live forever with him in the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. That's the idea of exchange. That's the idea of covenant. It's it's an all-in kind of thing. You give all of yourself for all of God giving himself in return. That's the covenant exchange. It's not a heavy-handed idea. It's an invitation. It's an invitation to what the New Testament describes as a covenant of love. So we, every year, have been following the practice of John Wesley's early Methodists from England of conducting a covenant renewal service. Now, people might say, well, why do you need a covenant renewal? If you enter into covenant, aren't you in? Well, yeah, in one sense, but in another sense, there's a pattern in the Bible of covenant renewal. We talked earlier about Abraham's covenant in Genesis 15. That's significant. But there was a very significant event in the life of God's people, the exodus from Egypt, that led them to Sinai, where they met God in a powerful way. And that was a covenant renewal ceremony. God was saying, you need to know how to get along with a holy God, and I'm going to tell you, and we're going to renew our commitments to each other. So when he gave Moses the Ten Commandments, that was God saying to the people, here's what I expect from you. When he revealed himself as the liberator from Egypt, he was showing, here's what you can expect from me. I'm going to get you out of slavery and take you to a land that is better than you could have ever imagined. And he's saying, I'm going to do that, and here's what you're going to do in return, because we have this covenant agreement. I'm going to give you what you could never get for yourself, and you're going to give me all of yourself. And here's how that works. That's the covenant exchange. So they did that at Sinai. There's also very similar type of ceremony takes place when Solomon builds the temple in Jerusalem and God comes to enter the temple. It's a renewal of covenant. It's a a recommitment that, yes, God, we are going to be your faithful people. So that's what we do when it comes to covenant. We do the same kind of idea. We follow the pattern of John Wesley, and he first mentioned this back in 1755 in his journal. And as far as we can tell, the first covenant renewal or John Wesley covenant service was in August of 1755. Now, his original service is quite long and detailed, and I have never used it as he left it for us. I I guess I'm a little reluctant because of the language, because it's harder for us to kind of understand what he says because of the way they use words. So what I've done is I've taken that idea, I've learned from some other people and what they've done, and I've put together a covenant renewal service that we then participate in every year, either at the end of the year, in this case we did it on the last Sunday of 2023, sometimes we do it on the first Sunday of a new year, but I thought it's impossible for us to do this in terms of of read and respond, which is what we did, but I thought I could go through this covenant renewal idea and invite you to participate in your recommitment, your covenant renewal to the Lord here at the beginning of this new year. And if you've never made a commitment to God, perhaps in these words from John Wesley, as kind of revised and made a little bit more understandable, I hope, for us. But in this idea, you will renew your covenant of faithfulness to God. So I'm just going to begin and read down through here. And I think you'll pick up on the kind of the idea of the back and forth. 
But even if you don't, you'll get the essential idea of covenant. It starts with the invitation. Come, let us join ourselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant which will never be forgotten. Let us pray. Almighty God, you know our hearts, our desires, and all our secrets. Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. And now the exhortation. Fix these three principles in your hearts. One, things eternal are much more substantial than things temporal. Two, things not seen are as certain as the things that are seen. And three, your choice determines your eternal destiny. Choose Christ and his ways and you are blessed forever. Refuse and you are undone forever. Will you now trust Christ? If so, he gives you these assurances. First, you have the assurance that God sent Christ into the world to save sinners, redeeming and reconciling the world to himself. Second, you have the assurance that God commands us to give allegiance to his Son, Jesus Christ. Third, you have the assurance that Jesus is the foundation that can be trusted. God says in his word, I'm setting a stone in Zion, a cornerstone in the place of honor. Whoever trusts in this stone as a foundation will never have cause to regret it. And now the commitment. Give yourselves now to the Lord. Let him run your life. Throw yourselves wholeheartedly and full time into God's way of doing things. Don't you realize that you become the slave of whatever you choose to obey? You can be a slave to sin, which leads to death, or you can choose to obey God, which leads to righteous living. With the psalmist we say, Lord, we are yours. We reverence you. We dedicate ourselves to your service. Now let us commit and confirm our covenant with God. And this is the heart of the covenant. Search your hearts. Have you already or can you now freely make these commitments to God in Christ? First, give up all known sin. In your power, we will watch for any temptation. And that is referring to God. God, in your power, we will watch for any temptation that will lead us away from you. Second, take this covenant seriously. We acknowledge you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, as our Lord and God. Third, embrace this covenant with God and depend upon his promise of grace and strength to enable you to keep your commitments. Do not trust your own strength. Rely on his strength. We are ever in need of grace to make us whole and holy. Fourth, resolve to be faithful. Steadfastly determine that by grace you will never turn away from the Lord. We will fulfill our duty to love God generously and people graciously. And finally, the covenant prayer. O God, you know that we have made this covenant today in sincerity, without deceit or reluctance. 
If you find anything false in us, guide us and help us to set it right. Now glory be to you, God the Father. From this day forward we shall look upon you as our God and Father. Glory be to you, God the Son. You have loved us and washed us from our sins. From this day forward we shall look upon you as our Savior and Redeemer. Glory be to you, O God the Holy Spirit. By your almighty power you have turned our hearts from sin to God. From this day forward we shall look upon you as our comforter and guide. Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you have now become our covenant friend. And we, through your finite, infinite grace, have become your covenant servants. You are ours and we are yours. May this covenant that we have made here on earth be ratified in heaven. Amen. And if that is your commitment and covenant, welcome to the family of God and keep those covenant commitments. Don't rely on your strength, but rely on God and He will keep you. He will help you stretch in His direction and have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God.